Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, so welcome to the latest episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. And this week, I'm really pleased to be joined by Tom Dunlop, who's founder and CEO of Surmise. Tom, welcome to uh, the show. Yeah, no, thank you very much for uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's, it's great to have you on. And I'm, I'm really interested to, to, to have the discussions today. It's going to be good. Um, but I think you may have listened to some of the episodes uh, and it's sl- it's becoming a little bit kind of cheesy now, I guess, me asking this question, but uh, everyone knows what's coming. But um, were you into uh, video games as a, as a kid? Are you into video games now? Uh, and if so, what, what were some of the favorites? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think I, I definitely, whether this was a bias by my kind of sporting background, um, was was very much into the the kind of, I guess, the FIFAs that sort yeah. of pro evo in uh in, in university just seemed to seem to dominate my uh my time there but i think more recently i'm kind of less cool i'd say and, and, and very much kind of take more of an interest in my five-year-olds and nintendo switch games and things like animal crossing and crossy roadie was another one that she uh, she really enjoyed okay. um but uh but yeah it's interesting to see the kind of development of how you know minecraft and things like that are kind of on the on the periphery of of what kind of the, the the kids are looking at in terms of her, not the, the kids are slightly older than her. So yeah, that's probably the next thing that will be uh, occupying hers on my time. But um, yeah, yeah, less cool these days. Yeah, I sympathise. I I spend many weekends in front of the TV uh, playing Just Dance with my three daughters. Um, so it's <laughs> uh, it's a long way away from from the days of Grand Grand Theft Auto. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and and I used to like the sporting ones as well. But um, I can remember having some sort of track and field game on the PC, and it's all about like pressing the, pressing the buttons to run as fast as you possibly can. As fast as you can. Yeah, just yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to really enjoy that. <laughs> um, Definitely cool. Um, okay, so let's let's get into some of the more kind of uh, interesting topics uh, for the podcast. But I'm I'm really interested to hear a bit more about surmise. Um, it sounds like a really interesting product. So I was just wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about uh, about Surmise, kind of what problems does it solve? What value does it deliver? You know, who who are you delivering that value for? Yeah, definitely. So I, th- I think it is most basic. What we're trying to solve is essentially the kind of low value, just manual tasks. And I guess the frustrations associated around the contracts. So mm. what, what it's all kind of centered around is the fact that we create these kind of instant contract summaries. That's at the core of the product. But I think surrounding that, I guess we like to think of ourselves as just that kind of lightweight platform yeah. with a, a really clear focus on that kind of time to value and ease of use. And that's pretty much the, the, the approach that we take um, across the, the, the range of the, the, the products, really kind of enhance and kind of augment legal teams' existing working habits. And um, rather than, I guess, drive them to a new system or a whole new platform to learn, it's more about that kind of augmentation of, of existing um, practices. So that, that yeah. in a nutshell, that's kind of what we what we do. Yeah. So those summaries that come back, are they uh, summaries just purely of the content? Does it do any sort of um, kind of summary of the uh, risk or, or key points within those contracts? Yeah, so we, we have, I guess, two different ways that we can kind of present the summary. So the first way is, you, you know, you literally select the clauses that you want to, to kind of extract. And what we can do is not just kind of extract, I guess, data. We can give very specific outputs. So we can almost like interpret um, mm. the clause. So, for example, on a confidentiality clause, we can understand whether it's kind of a, a one-way or a, a kind of mutual mm. um, confidentiality clause. So the, the actual result of the summary might say, you know, this is a mutual confidentiality clause or confidentiality for both parties. And I guess alongside that, we can also trigger red flags automatically so we can kind of take into account key risks. Um, and a, a, another kind of recent development is, you know, whilst we've got the the full list of clauses, I guess, for the more legal um, people within businesses and, and the law firms, mm. we can then flip that and actually turn it into a kind of Q&A summary. Okay. Um, so we actually have the ability to say, you know, how do I get paid? What are my biggest risks? How do I get out of the contracts? Because that's probably the the kind of question that someone asked of a contract. Mm. And we can kind of display the summary in in kind of the the answers to those questions, as well as obviously kind of the full list of the clauses. So there's kind of dual aspects, and I think that goes back to we're trying to augment lawyers the way they do it, but also really take into account practically 
how do people actually communicate with contracts? What do they actually want to know rather than a list of every single clause? Exactly. Yeah, no, it does. And it's, it, like you say, it's, it's what they want to know and why they want to know it. Kind of what decisions are they trying to make? And uh, I yeah. think I think that's a really interesting trend right now is is moving beyond purely just taking data out and presenting it and saying, here's the data that's in the contract or here are some of the clauses and turning that into actionable insight to say, what are you trying to do? And if you tell me what, what you're trying to do, I'll give you the information to go make the right decision. Um, so yeah, no, I really like that. I really like that. Um, but I mean, you, you, talked, you alluded to a couple of points a minute ago, but I mean, what, what would you say are the kind of key differentiators for, for Samize? I guess there's a lot of, uh, a lot of good companies operating in the contract analysis space. So what, what makes you kind of distinct? Yeah, I, mean, I think most, I guess, listeners or, or users of these platforms will probably relate to the fact that contract review tools or technology so far have quite a good use case for particular kind of large scale contract reviews and yeah. DDs. But I think the day to day and the smaller projects, it doesn't feel like there's there's a lot of tools out there. And I also think that, you know, there's, a, there's this big kind of, um, there's a big push, I guess, to create the platform. You know, we are the end to end platform for mm. contracts. And so what I think, you know, that certainly in terms of the differentiators and how, how we kind of position ourselves, it's more of a case of, well, rather than trying to draw you to a new platform, kind of get the whole business to come to a new platform, really what we're trying to do is have this kind of central repository, but actually the way people interact with that is through tools that they already know. So the Slack, Teams, SharePoint, maybe G Drive, Chrome, even things yeah. like that. So that, that's very much the differentiator between us and a lot. It's more modular contract management, go to where the users already are, um, and certainly focus on the more day-to-day, lightweight, ease of use um, aspect rather than we've got a huge project with you know thousands of contracts where we need to run them through and, and kind of spot the patterns across them. Yeah, so kind of keep keep it simple, keep it valuable and, and just reduce that friction for, for people yeah. wanting to use it. And and I, I know we'll come on to talk more about that kind of concept of, of platforms and one-stop shops versus some of these more lightweight tools later in the episode. So that'll be really interesting. Um, so what about your background then? So you're, you're at Surmise. Uh, I, I suspect, you know, you, um, you've kind of, you've moved around, you've had a few different roles before you founded it, but can you just highlight your background, your history and, and your journey from, from whatever you're doing before to, to founding and becoming the CEO of Surmise? Yeah, of course. So, um, I guess a good place to start and I still try and hold on to this as a, uh, you know, something that was in the, in the kind of recent past, even though it's, it's, it's getting further and further away, um, was, was kind of the sporting background. So, yeah. I mean, a lot of the time I went through the university, university and, and, and prior to that, I guess my focus was well, badminton um, okay. and kind of being a, a GB kind of badminton player. And very much, to be honest, my plan was all about the Olympics, you know, the world-class yeah. uh, funding program, all kind of leading up to the um, to the Olympics and the legal route wasn't necessarily a, a primary route at all. Actually, it was kind of something that I guess fell into afterwards. So, um, so yeah, kind of as I was doing my law degree, um, I was still essentially a full-time professional badminton player. Um, and then it kind of got to the crunch point of, well, I probably need to commit, you know, do it, doing a full-time badminton and athlete or actually give this kind of legal thing a go. So, what, what I did actually end of my law degree, I kind of made the choice to, and I actually set up a business actually. It was a, mm. it was a comparison site for solicitors when I, when I left and I, I kind of did that while I did my legal practice course. Um, and then soon after that fell into the kind of um, sports agency world. Um, I, th- I felt like it was a good mix between obviously my sporting yeah. background, but also the, the legal background. Um, so very much kind of a boutique kind of law firm that that also specialized in the kind of commercial and sports field it was a new newly set up firm through um you know a very entrepreneurial lawyer who was previously an in-house lawyer at some some big companies um and it was great because essentially i had that, that experience of i guess combining my, my sporting background but there was a very entrepreneurial feel to building something different you know mm-hmm. building a different type of law firm it kind of acted as a bit of a quasi in-house team to its to its kind of business clients yeah but also had a kind of sporting edge to, to, to kind of athletes as well. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, it's always baptism by fire, kind of really kind of being at the thick end of, of a very small firm, but yeah. still kind of learning a, a number of skills that, that set me up well to, I guess, pursue an, a, an in-house career after I qualified in, in that firm. Um, so, so yeah, from, from there really to, to today, it's been a case of moving around a few different in-house um, positions, the, the, the most relevant of which um, are kind of the last, the last three, which were all tech or software companies. Yeah. 
Um, this is kind of head of legal at um, a kind of global software business called AppSense, um, which is relevant because we, we actually have a few of the, I guess, old alumni from that company in, in Smize. Okay. Um, and we also then, after that, I was kind of legal director at a company called Zuto, again, tech-enabled tech business. And then the last one, which was quite an interesting spin on um, kind of a, uh, what software companies do in the, in the modern day is, is a US company called UserZoom, uh, UserZoom that was kind of a, a SaaS company. Um, very fast growth at that kind of big scale up phase, um, you know, looking to, to, I guess, IPO or, you know, be, 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 mm. be very much a unicorn in the next, um, next couple of years. So a, a bit of a differential from a, a UK global software company to then finishing up in the kind of that Silicon Valley based SaaS company yeah. um, before very much um, setting up some eyes, kind of learn from those use cases, I guess. Yeah. I, I guess like kind of working as a lawyer within a tech business probably set you up quite well for kind of setting up your own company and kind of knowing some of the um, some of the kind of key factors that that go into making a successful kind of technology company. Yeah, it, it definitely did. I think there's 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 a couple of things that that happen. I think one, you kind of get the bug. You know, I think you work in these highly entrepreneurial environments. You're, you're there with the founders, um, and you hear about almost the the way they started up, and it, you know, or they all start in a relatively similar way. They saw a problem, mm. probably in their own domain. You know, within this in Zoom's case, it was kind of UX research testing. Um, started out trying to develop something, pivoted a few times, mm. and then when they hit that scale-up phase, when they really got that kind of product market fit, um, you know, they, they kind of exploded in terms of that growth. But I think going along that journey um, gives you two things: one, knowledge of potentially how to replicate it, but two, not to be afraid of it. I think I think there's this big kind of totally. um, perception that you know you can't just just go and create a company and you think of how these companies got there. But they were all they all started with this quite basic idea and and pivoted and grew and just had the, the, the commitment and drive to do it. So yeah. it, it definitely shaped my, um, my path. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with that, that confidence point as well. I think um, if I look back to when I was a lawyer or before, even before that, looking at tech companies and startups, uh, I would definitely think, wow, you know, that's a big commitment. That's a, there's a lot of risk involved in that. And I'm not saying there isn't, but I think when you've, when you've worked in that kind of um, that, that environment and those scale, startup scale-up businesses, that it does give you a little bit more confidence that if you do have a good idea, you, know, you, you, can, you can make a success of it. Uh, and it's perhaps not the bigger, biggest leap that you might imagine it to be. Um, but, but then, okay, so, so you were, you were in-house in a tech company um, and, and you mentioned then you moved on to Surmise, but what, what did that leap actually look like? So where did the idea for it come? Where was that kind of light bulb moment? What steps did you take after that to, to really start kind of building the product and building the business? So I think, I mean, it kind of goes back to the, the AppSense days. There was a, a few years ago when um, I basically went through a, an acquisition. This was the first, in some ways, the light bulb moment um, where we went through an acquisition. We were acquired by a US company. I personally had to review about 500 contracts. Um, and what was interesting at the time was I did look at the tech tools on the market um, as a GC at the time. And basically I, I kind of, you know, I needed to get going within that week. You know, the reality was, you know, like on all these things, someone presses a button and says, we'll go. You then have the, the task of, of doing the, you know, the review of the contracts or, um, you know, extracting that key information. And the reality was there was no one who would even come close to being able to be flexible enough or have that kind of time to value that could have provided me any any value to actually help me with that review. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I did the manual review. Obviously, it was, it was painful. <laughs> and then uh, yeah. I kind of, you know, some kind of broken man went over to a um, <laughs> one of the senior software developers who was working there at the time and just kind of said, listen, like I, I've been doing this. Uh, there's got to be a better way of, of doing it. I, can't, I know exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and so we, we started to trade ideas, but then I think as I went through my next couple of roles, really what I, what I realized was that, you know, it wasn't just the project review stuff that, that had a problem. I think it was that day-to-day, -day, you know, business people coming up to you saying, you know, what was the terms for this contract that we signed two years ago? Well, I don't mm -hmm. know. We have to go and manually read it and find it out. Then there was another one, which was, well, GDPR. I mean, that was a prime example where you had to do a, a bit of a project review and quite unique part of your contracts that, that was unprecedented and, and you kind of had to then action it. And I think there was, there was a lot of that, that kind of like day-to-day -day use cases as well as the more project-based use cases that made me think there's, there's no tools out there that, that are kind of flexible enough or certainly have the ability to get up and running quickly to help me with these kind of quite diverse um, use cases. And so we just started to kind of create prototypes, basically. Me and my co-founder, Dave, just 
um, created some very, very ropey prototypes of just being able to upload a contract and then you saw a summary pop out. Yeah. Um, and that concept of just creating a summary of, of a document was very powerful. And I think that really resonated with people that I knew. We tested the market, we went to lawyers and they were just really keen on, on, on just that concept. So it was kind of then, and I think, you know, the real turning point, I guess, was, was probably around March, April, 2019, when we, we actually raised our, our first kind of seed investment and we got our chairman on board who, um, was the former founder and, and CEO of Absence. So the company I was GC at that sold, um, that Charlie, who, who founded that company then came on board as our chairman and as an investor, um, yeah. alongside Maven at that point it became, oh, right. You know, we're building out a, a development team now to, to make this a, a proper product, you know, make mm -hmm. this a, a product that we can, we can commercialize. Um, and it was, it was kind of after doing that and, and, and selling it obviously to, to, uh, prove now that we could sell it for, for different, uh, use cases in house and prior practice. And then that's when I, you know, went full time, we raised some further funds and, and kind of, uh, I guess from there takes yeah. us to where we are today to, to a certain extent, yeah. fast forward a year. So you, so you were actually kind of building it whilst still, still working kind of as a, as an in-house lawyer. And then there was just that moment with the funding was almost the catalyst that you kind of suddenly realized okay, yeah, this is serious now and I'm all in. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and I think, it, which was, you know, in some ways, there's, there, I mean, a lot of people talk about the kind of, I don't know, the side job or something that you, you kind of do in the background. I think it, for me, I, I was very lucky to be in companies that almost encouraged it as well. And I think that was a big factor of how I was probably able to do, to do kind of both side by side was, um, you know, they were very entrepreneurial companies. They had that mindset, which we've adopted a lot in some eyes about, you know, if this was your last job because you went to create a successful software company, I would rather have you in the company today giving us your value before you go and become founder of a, of a different company. And I think yeah. they adopted that mentality. So that, that enabled me to, you know, get advice from people in the company, be very open about it. Um, and when the time came right, it was very, very kind of... Uh, I guess amicable and um i was able to, to concentrate on this and they wish me good luck and i still speak to a lot of them today um you know to see if there's advice i can get or bounce things off them um and they're, they're more than happy to help so that definitely helped yeah and i guess that you know that seeds that seed funding that series a, series a type funding um is, is a pivotal stage for for a lot of businesses and, and i guess a lot of people listening will read a lot of the kind of legal tech press and see companies getting that type of funding what what is it what does it mean for a company like Samize when that when that arrives? What are you, what um, what goes into kind of sourcing that that funding, and and what did it mean for you in the business, and what did it allow you to then go and do? Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting one because I think funding historically, particularly in the UK, there's this mentality that you need to have you know bootstrapped a business to a certain point, you need to have you know proven the model to, to X amount of revenue, and then you you get a certain amount of funding that can maybe drive you to the the next. The next stage but i think you know what what i loved about the american mentality was well look it's clearly a, a huge market it's clearly a um you know there's clearly a use case for it so you know to build what you need to build and because the market's moving quickly funding just enables you to do it quicker and enables you to do it better and mm -hmm. i think that it gives people that first mover advantage it gives people that ability to scale quicker and ultimately they're the ones who win um and so the funding was, I guess, validation of the concept, validation of you know, the idea that we, we believe we're onto something. But I think more so, it just gives you that real kind of um, sort of rocket fuel to, to make it happen. And I think it's, it's, there's kind of a strange culture in some eyes that there's almost this inevitability, like we, the people involved, whether it's from the sports background and, you know, I'm sure there's a number of things we can go into on that in terms of the, the transferable skills, but from from our perspective, it wasn't a case of, okay, we've got the C funding, let's, you know, we, we could fail if we don't do X. This was more, well, this is just stage one. You know, we know exactly what we're going to do with this money. We know exactly what where we're going to be. Um, and then from that, we know exactly the next phase. And there, there, there's like an inevitability of where we'll be. And I think that that helps with, rather than I think some people get funding, for example, or think that funding is this kind of like, almost event in itself that you should you should kind of celebrate and um and then go on to the next part of the journey for us it was just one step that we need to overcome yeah um to to, to get to where we know we can be yeah yeah no, totally um you just alluded to it there about the kind of lessons learned from your from your kind of sporting 
uh, career, and and I'm always fascinated by this. Um, my um, my my brother-in-law plays on the European tour, and uh, I love talking to him about sport and uh, sports psychology and and performance, and then kind of. And I ask a lot of questions about what he reads and uh, how he how he operates, and I kind of try I try and take that sometimes into how I work in the in the kind of on the business side. But what what would you say are the kind of lessons you took with you from from that kind of sporting career of yours into into what you're doing, and and has it had a big impact on on the su- success of yourself and surmise? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's huge, and I think I mean it is at the core of our culture. I I, I kind of reference this a lot when I. Um, I guess talk about the way the way that we work and this is from onboarding to actually the, the the culture itself is all about this kind of continuous improvement um kaizen mentality and the, i probably didn't even term it that way when i was in sport the way that i the way that i looked at it was because at the time i was the european number one um at badminton to get there it wasn't that i was necessarily physically stronger or, or more skillful what you find is that you kind of that kind of plateaus when you get to a certain level, mm. and I think when you're competing at that kind of like world's best, particularly Olympic level, and um, to get the edge, it's all about your, I guess, mental strength, your um, kind of being in the, in the zone when you're, when you're kind of performing. And I think there's so many kind of things that we used to do um, to get us into that zone or to prepare us so that we had no excuse that we shouldn't be in that zone. So you did the physical training, which was fine, but I used to do things like, um, you know, this is probably the most extreme example in some ways that, that I can think of, but even getting up at half four and yeah. training in the morning, I yeah. didn't necessarily do more hours than other people training. Um, but at the same time, when I went on court with someone, I had this just just confidence that I, you know I know that they wouldn't do that. Um, so to me, it didn't really matter whether they put more strength training or anything else. I was just mentally stronger, and I would I would kind of go on court, and they would know it as well. Yeah. And so I think that mentality of just finding those, I and mean, we call them now the one percent, and it's obviously a very, a very kind of well-trodden path in terms of this continuous improvement. You know, Clive Woodward and Dave Brailsford, mm. kind of particularly from the sporting background, obviously advocates a lot. But, but really, it, it is part of our culture, and I think surmise what we always try and do is say, well, you know, rather than trying to find those silver bullets of you know transformative tech, for example, we we just look at those small changes we can make both in the products but also in the life of our users and i think that's very much the culture of how how we operate but also how the product solves the problem it does yeah it actually it actually ties really nicely in with that kind of product mindset actually about the fact that it's not just about throwing um you know features and functionality and new newfangled technology into the products and just hope something sticks it's actually about yeah, finding those those marginal gains, looking and, and and talking to customers and clients, and actually finding out what would move the needle, needle, what would actually make a big impact for them. And I guess going back to your simplicity point, which is it's okay just to kind of focus on on that maybe that that one key element because you know that that is what's going to make all the difference. All the other stuff, yeah, it's nice to have, but it's not essential. But if you you, you know you absolutely nail that one area then you're going to deliver value and you're going to have a big impact. So I, I kind of like the parallels there. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, one of the things that you see in the, the, the consumer world almost moves faster than the, certainly the B2B software world. Um, and I think one of the interesting trends with just consumer technology is the, the advent of things like Alexa or even smartwatches. You think, well, actually, what what's more convenient about having a smartwatch on your, on your wrist compared to looking at your phone or the same things, but mm-hmm. there's just, just something about that extra level of convenience to your day to day that yeah. just drives people's imagination, gets them invested in these types of ways of working. And that becomes the new norm. Yeah. And then there's something that's a little bit better, a little bit better. And I think that that's certainly the mentality that we're trying to bring to, I guess, contracts generally. Yeah, no, totally. So when, so when you look back at your journey from, well, actually, really interesting journey from from kind of sportsman through kind of uh, sports agency and law into in house, and now into as a founder and CEO. Like, kind of, what what advice would you have for um, lawyers, um, maybe in house private practice um, that want to move into legal technology, maybe as a founder with their own idea, or maybe just you know as an employee in legal tech? Are there any kind of pieces of advice you would have for them? Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the first thing to get into with before even making a move, um, just, just, just straight into the tech is all about the mindset. I think, um, you know, just, just really trying to be a, a creative person. And that sounds very vague, but I think what, what I found when I speak to a lot of lawyers and what I dealt with when I obviously, you know, colleagues, I guess, when I was, um, when I was practicing was 
the lawyers are great problem solvers and lawyers are great at understanding a number of facts, understanding, you know, subjective opinion, understanding risks and, um, and then interpreting those and then giving, I guess, advice on the back of that. And it's usually risk-based. So you're looking at a lot of facts, you're kind of digesting it and you're giving some kind of output. I mean, essentially when you're in legal text, it's exactly the same thing. It's just that what you need to be doing is focusing on the creative, the value add, the, the you know, how can I take you one step forward rather than the risk. Yeah. Um, so I think there's the, the first thing to do before even, you know, jumping whole first into, into kind of uh, a legal tech role or, or becoming a founder is, is just really everything that you do, having that kind of same problem solving approach, but thinking on that creative end. And it sounds quite basic, but actually it's hugely valuable. I've always tried to make sure that whatever I was doing, there's one thing I did in a previous role as an in-house lawyer that I found that, um, you know, for example, I was sending out my contract to the other side. They'd mark up the same clauses over and over again. I'd have a conversation with them over the phone. They understood my position and then we'd go back to what I originally had. And I was thinking that's three weeks of the contract life cycle just wasted. So yeah. I actually recorded a video of me going through the contract that the sales used to send out <laughs> before I even spoke to them. And it said, you know, hi, I'm Tom. I humanized the experience a little bit and kind of said, look, this is why I've done this in the contract. It's because the product does X. And suddenly the contract lifecycle reduced by kind of four weeks because that initial three to four week negotiation where you don't actually speak to each other was, um, was gone because they understood it and it actually humanized the process more. So it was quite a small change. The videos took me five minutes to record, but it was hugely valuable. And it was like a creative way of, of, of making a, a change to my daily life. And I think once you get onto that path, you, you, you find there's like so much opportunity and things like that across, across the board. And that mm -hmm. opens up whether it be roles into legal tech, whether it be that you've now found a, a very niche or a specific use case that is actually not solved. And then that could lead to you becoming a founder. So I think it all leads from that mindset. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's yeah. As you say, it's moving, moving beyond seeing yourself as a, as a person who's there to to spot and and mitigate risk and and accepting that it's okay to be a, a creative per person, someone who's spotting opportunities to create value and deliver new value and do things in a different way. Uh, but I absolutely love the example you've just given there. I think that's really interesting about actually filming yourself going through the contract because you're absolutely right when you think about what lawyers do with contracts and it's almost an accepted process, isn't it? That you don't get face to face with someone straight away. You're just, it's kind of like, right, let's just, let's get our heads to term signed and then we'll do our first draft and I'll give it over to you and you go and do your, your next draft and we'll converse over e email. Then maybe we'll get on a phone call and then maybe right at the end, we'll actually get in a room face to face and actually have a very human conversation about it. But it's ridiculous because clients are paying for, for all of that nonsense back and forth, you know, especially when you're work. I guess you're talking about working in house, but for for clients paying lawyers to do that process it's just so expensive why can't you just yeah let's just be a lot more reasonable a lot more human about it we all know where we're going to kind of get to and we've all got our conflicting priorities so let's just be open and honest about it and i'm sure we'll get to a better better result quicker but yeah that's yeah. that's epic that filming yourself going through a contract is brilliant i love that <laughs> it was it was really powerful it was kind of a small i i i totally agree i think the the missing thing in the legal uh, whether it be negotiation or just a legal process generally, whether it be litigation or um, contract negotiation or, or kind of a corporate deal, is the human is humanizing it. And I think technology these days, if nothing else, we've now got the technology that no matter where you are in the world, you can humanize the process. And I think that there's, there's huge value across the whole kind of, I guess, legal services spectrum to actually introduce the human element. And I think it will make everything just that bit more efficient. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm a big advocate of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we see it a little bit on spend, you know, um, legal spend that, that you get some, some approaches that are very adversarial, like we want to hammer our law firms on spend and, you know, get the, get the best possible deal. Um, but we get a different approach, which is actually, you know, let's try and let's, let's find a way where we can actually try and get the best possible outcomes for both sides. Um, you know, we know law firms are trying to deliver their services, get their fees and, and um, make things happen on their side. In-house teams are, are you know, struggling with, with workload, limited resource maybe. They're trying to get results. Let's just find the best way of achieving that for both sides. Um, yeah. it, doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be so adversarial. It can be, as you say, um, more human. Uh, but just on that, actually, um, just whilst we talk about kind of in-house teams um, and, and kind of what they're going through, you know, as a as a former in-house lawyer and someone who's, I guess, very still very close to some of the some of the challenges facing in-house uh, legal departments. What would you um, what would you say 
some of the key um, factors that are impacting in-house teams are right now, um, that, and particularly factors that might mean that those teams are turning to technology? Yeah, so I think one thing that's been quite interesting over the last, I guess, 10 to 15 years um, is I, I think there's been kind of the, the advent or the very real consequences of risk really come to the forefront of a business's mindset. Mm. You know, you've seen obviously the financial crash, you, you've seen GDPR, you've seen COVID. I think there's things on climate change probably coming. Um, I think businesses, rather than having this kind of risk in a box in the corner of the room somewhere, risk is now a very real threat in terms of a, a proper kind of business plan in terms of how you're going to grow. And regulation has obviously increased. A, a lot of that has meant that legal, for me, has really been put in the spotlight to be, you know, a real kind of seat around the table, a real business leader, yeah. um, because it's now a business priority. Um, but it did, you know, the, I guess the, the, the pressures on an in-house team is that the, the kind of day-to-day stuff or the kind of service of legal is, is still very much there. So you've got this this huge kind of workload that exists. You've got now this increased expectation on being a very much kind of business leader because it is now a top business priority. And then I guess the kind of challenges and where tech can help is that from a headcount perspective, you, you're still probably considered the bottom of, you know, a support function that is yeah. probably at the bottom of the list in terms of getting headcount. So when you, when you kind of throw all that together, you've got this kind of, you know, really quite stretched but essential kind of resource that when you look at what what they do day to day um and i used to do this a lot particularly in the smaller in-house legal teams i mean there's, there's just so much like just just low value process driven work um that is that is kind of just just taking time and time is the absolute most precious commodity for um you know well i guess for anyone but certainly for for, for the kind of in-house lawyer um so yeah, in terms of work, like in terms of tech and, and enabling it, I think the the problem that they've, they've kind of had is, you know, tech is very tailored to probably more the more private practice, like very very either um, use case specific, you know, very kind of like right corporate lawyers do this, yeah. so we need to develop a tech product that does this. An in house lawyer's role is so varied that to try and find something that can assist with, I guess, the, 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 the kind of extremely varied workload and extremely yeah. varied areas of law that you do a day to day is also really hard. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just the, the melting part of this kind of stretched but extremely essential resource really in the spotlight in the past kind of 10 to 15 years, but struggling to scale headcount mm. alongside the importance of, I guess, the role in the business function that yeah. it's kind of been taken on. Yeah, I mean, you go to all these conferences and it's been a bit of a, a kind of a cliche over the last few years, but everyone talking about this kind of more for less challenge. And, and, and actually, interestingly, when I've had conversations with, with in-house lawyers and GCs, they, they push back against it in a little, in some ways, not because it's untrue, but they kind of, I think, I guess if you look at it more for less, a lot of people say it's not necessarily more of the same as, as you've alluded to. It's almost more by way of different types of work, actually you know, different, um, different types of work in terms of the you know, growing um, risk um, landscape, maybe becoming more strategic, as you said, and joining more of the, um, the senior decision-making process. So there's that kind of not, not only more work, but actually a changing nature of the work that lawyers do. And then the less piece, that, that's what gets pushed back against um, sometimes. A lot of teams say, actually, I don't necessarily um, have, have less. Um, I'm just trying to achieve more with the same. Um, yeah. Or even more with maybe sometimes they do have slightly more resource, but the actual growth in what they're doing completely outweighs that. So um, there, I think there are some really interesting challenges facing in-house teams at the moment in terms of, of, of how they're working and the changing nature of their role. Yeah, and I think it comes back to I mean, because fundamentally, I'm a big believer that um, you know this whole concept of kind of legal as a service is it, it, it's kind of obvious that it will happen. I think I think there's this kind of concept that legal has obviously been, I mean, even by the billable hour, um, by the way that a lot of legal operate in terms of the work they do, it's all been set up as quite a reactive, more occasional use service. And I think that that's just a market thing. You know, there's just always, that's just the way legal has been um, set up, I guess, and, and kind of historically, whereas, you know, you've got every other aspect of a business's function and even on, in, in a consumer sense as well, in terms of the macro uh, look at it, that, is, is as a service, you know, you've just got this type of either advice or access just all all the time. And I think that 
that's what legal is struggling with is that everything surrounding legal, the work they do, how you prove the value, obviously even down to the bill of blower, is all set up to be this reactivational use. Whereas everything around legal and every business is really set up for you know, functions as a service. Where you know even now with COVID, the fact that you can just you know have a have a video conference with anyone, chat any time of the day, yeah. you can never really switch off. Like legal has to adapt to that and they have to be able to provide that same service and that same advice, but in a kind of as a service way. Yeah. So I think that's the kind of, you know, it, there's a huge market shift putting pressure on the way that legal interacts with businesses and clients alongside the internal pressures. Yeah. It's, it's it, that whole legal as a service concept is really interesting. You've got organizations, I guess, like a bit like Elevate, who are, are trying to kind of almost um, provide a solution for for outsourcing, almost outsourcing your, your in-house department as well and and i think a lot about what the impact of covid and the pandemic is going to be on on in-house teams uh, and all firms but predominantly in-house teams now you've got um, a remote workforce that is set up to work at home will we see a kind of a shifting landscape where you you do out perhaps perhaps outsource a little bit more of of your legal work perhaps you have some key strategic um uh, people within the legal department um that then leverage this kind of network of, of uh, suppliers and, and legal service providers and, and outsourced legal support to kind of get the best results. But actually their, their, their role internally is much more, much more um, managerial strategic and they're just leveraging this network. I think just the, the patterns of what we're going to see by way of kind of team structures and, and makeup is going to really shift over the coming few months and years, I think. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think the last 12 months have shown us that 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 is on the advent i mean there's 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 nothing stopping remote you know everyone working in that kind of remote way you obviously still have that place of of having your, your core hq and the kind of collaborative element but um it enables those types of business models even more than ever and i think it's forced people to adopt that whether it be the tools and the technology and there's the way of working that it just means you're set up to adopt that type of model so um yeah i, yeah. I totally agree yeah and that's that's the reason you know there's remote workforces why a lot of technology is now, I mean, you've seen the explosion of the adoption of just the kind of communication and um, collaboration tools, but then that will move into more of the work that lawyers do, I think. Um, and you know, people still need access to knowledge and know-how. They can't necessarily, if they're not in the office, they're not having conversations, they're not checking in with people. So you need to find ways of collating and storing all of that, making it accessible. So um, I think this is going to be a real, this whole thing is going to be a real driver for for technology adoption generally, but definitely um, definitely, I think around what we would you know, normally term legal technology. Um, okay, so um, just on that topic, then, so just looking back, I mean, you mentioned one of the the idea for Samize came about. You were looking for a tool to help you with these contracts, this contract analysis, and and you couldn't find anything. But when you were an in house lawyer, were you act, what what technology did you use? Did you have? Would you were you using anything that would be normally termed legal technology? Was it more standard than that? What, what kind of tools did you use? I mean, it was it was very basic. I think if you asked a, a lot of, um, I guess, corporate legal departments, you you're literally dealing with you know email, Word, um, PDF, and Excel. And I think yeah. you know that it was it was it was it was very low tech, but at the same time that that served the purpose. And I think you what you you kind of found was that you you needed you know legal tech was great, but they were they were also very heavy systems for one part of the use case. And I think that was the biggest. Um, the biggest thing it wasn't necessarily displacing um, a big system that was already in place that worked well it was more just trying to be you know I guess flexible enough and varied enough that you could apply it to several different use cases that would make sense to work alongside you know your your core tools that you have as a business Um, so yeah it was very 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 manual but when you I mean when I'll be interested to hear your perspective on this but when you did look at look for tools did you find uh, I mean, you didn't find what you wanted, but did you get the feeling that the the legal tech market was it was it saturated? Was there just was there too much choice? Was it too confusing to sift through what things did? Because I, I think I've had conversations on the podcast with others about this topic about how many legal tech vendors there are out there and how it's starting to become a little bit crowded, a little bit confusing, um, particularly for for buyers. But did you did you have that experience? Would you say that the legal tech market is a little bit too too crowded right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there's no getting away from it. I think, I think there's there's obviously a lot of noise, and I think that, that's still the case. There's obviously kind of boom a few years ago where the initial wave came, and I think there is 
I think there's just confusion. I think the more the reason is, in my view, that and this is both from a buyer perspective um, as well as a vendor perspective, is that everyone's searching for those silver bullets. Yeah. And they're searching for you know the vendors are, are advertising silver bullets. You know, like you know, automate everything today. Um, and then you've got the buyer who's saying, you know, oh well, you know, this this tool, I want it to replace my day-to-day, you know, drive me to and from work and then, you know, do my washing. I mean, that's obviously extreme. But, you know, there's this kind of expectation that the kind yeah. of, the, the the products out there are, are just going to solve everything from day one. And I think there's, I, I have seen a slight change in mindset, if I'm honest. And I think when you speak, when we speak to customers today, and obviously it's a big part of our products, but that that kind of approach of saying, well, look, you're not going to find a tool that replaces what you do. You're a legal service. It's an advisory service. It's a subjective opinion. Mm. You know, this isn't um, just a, a kind of a job that involves processing of, of, of numbers or processing of information, which a computer could do. You've got to take into account a, a load of different factors. And essentially, you're paid for your advice or internally you are employed to provide advice on on a set of topics. So... To, to try and suggest that a tool could automate that, um, I think is is quite a bold one to try and solve today. So, this this type of incremental improvement, and again, I always come back to it. But actually, you know, everything to do with our products and everything to do with how we onboard, and and it is a bit of an education piece. It's to say, well, listen, why why search for the, those those huge silver bullets when we could make probably ten to fifteen small changes that is going to make a massive difference, but it doesn't actually feel such a big difference mm. once we go through that process and mm. i think that's the, the the problem with the noise is is there's, there's too much there's too many promises and too much expectation and i think that's the that's the problem with the noise at the minute exactly it's it you're right it's the the noise and the the marketing that goes around that has created this expectation that there is technology out there that could the, that could absolutely revolutionize and transform every aspect of, of, a, of a lawyer's life and, and what they're trying to do it's and and you see that coming through in RFPs, you know, it's it's a little bit like the whole, um, you know, when Ho- in in the Simpsons when Homer designs that car, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a little bit like that. The RFPs, you think there there can't possibly be a tool on the market that, that delivers this. This is crazy. Um, but but and you know, I think they're wasting a lot of time in that in in doing that. Um, and there needs to be a much much earlier, realistic requirements gathering and um, probably analysis done of. Uh, it goes back to your point about the the one percent, but organisations looking to bring in technology should be doing that analysis and, and actually saying where is our one percent, where's our where's our key gain going to be had, uh, and then minimising their requirements and just going after that first and then and then building from there. So it, it no, it is it is really interesting that that whole um, yeah the the market and and the requirements and expectations are yeah crazy. Well, if you, I mean, if you think back to I mean my, my story about the I guess recording the video I used. Um, at the time, Point Drive on LinkedIn. It was, a, it was an existing kind of license I had because they had Sales Navigator as a as a tool, mm. um, and it just allowed you to create basically like a almost like an interactive PDF. Basically, where you could insert media as well as content, so you could insert your contract as well as a video next to it. Um, like if I tried to sell that to someone, they'd be a bit, oh, it's a bit low tech. It's a bit, you know, it's not very exciting. But if I told them the result of four weeks off the procurement cycle, I mean every legal tech vendor in the market today would be kind of clambering over to get that type of return on investment. And yet it was a free, that was free. I didn't pay anything for it. Yeah. So I, I think there's sometimes just, just focusing purely on the problem and, and also there's like these, these vendors promising the world without really, really taking into account what effect those kind of small changes can have. And um, it's quite dangerous, yeah. dangerous kind of, game to play no totally i mean take take something like matter management for example and matter management uh vendors you know when you do your competitor analysis you've got to seriously put in as a competitor people that are just exceptionally good at using something like excel <laughs> because it's yeah. you've got this big old singing or dancing matter management platform but someone who can operate and be nimble around uh, maybe excel and some of the other microsoft uh, stack can actually pretty you know come close and it's like you say it's not exciting it's not particularly sexy it's a bit dull it's microsoft office but if it does the job it does the job um so yeah it's it's hard for vendors to to compete with the some of those simpler simpler options and maybe one of the ways of competing is as you you guys have done is just slim it back down um identify the key value keep it simple um yeah. 
but just just on augment that, it. yeah, exactly, exactly, augment it, yeah. Um, but just on that on that point, I guess, kind of what what have been your key learnings about selling to to corporate legal teams and selling to law firms? Um, you know, what what are the key factors that you've learned that that help you help you sell and help help your customers um, make make a decision easily? I, th- I mean, I th- the, the number one is kind of I guess in some ways what we've um, just covered is is really understand the use case. It's still ama- well, not amazes me, but um, we we get really you know one of the biggest piece of feedback we get is you know you can tell it's been built by a lawyer or you can tell it's been someone who's who's had the use case yeah um, and that's almost the first bit of feedback we get which makes me think that's not the norm you know that's not what other tools are, are doing um, and it is it is hard you know we've got an amazing development team and sometimes you know they come and they kind of say to me well we could we could do this and I'm like oh wow that that looks amazing but then when you actually just go back to the to the use case and you start thinking would add no value like it, it looks great but I, I would i just wouldn't use it there was no situation where i would actually use it mm. so like being absolutely nailed on to a very specific use case and always coming back to it is is one of the biggest kind of learning points that that we're still we're still learning i think our, con- our products got more complex um and, and across a number of different i guess you know whether it be integrations or different verticals that makes you think actually how do we pitch this now and yeah. i think it's always got to be use case streams. So that, that's number one. And then I think the second is just that re- reduce the friction or reduce that time to value um, as much as as much as possible. I think there is, you know, change management is an interesting area because you know it comes back to the kaizen kind of mindset. But change is isn't it's a kind of fight or flight response to, to, from humans. I mean, humans just don't like change naturally. It's, but it's like it's in our um, DNA to, yeah. to not like change. So if we know that, then presenting a solution that completely revolutionizes where someone is today, particularly people who are very time poor, makes you think, well, that, that isn't going to resonate particularly well because the instant reaction to that is going to be like, ah, uh, you know, and, and you kind of, you just get nervous or anxious about what that would mean. So reducing the friction, reducing that time to value and, and obviously understanding the use case are, 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 are by far the biggest um, lessons, I think, yeah. or, or things that we, we learned. But just so, just on the first one, then, in terms of the the value and identifying value and focusing relentlessly on on delivering that that core value. I mean, how do you how do you go about that when in the product design and, and, and product development process? How do you make sure that what you are building is valuable? How much um, how much kind of contact do you have with with um, with the market and your customers when you're when you're building new things or at least looking to build new things? I mean, what's interesting about that, because I obviously, prior to joining Samize, I worked for UserZoom. UserZoom is a, a UX research testing company. So everything that they do is all about user experience, is all about basically researching and testing with your customers before you even release anything. Um, so I'd say that definitely had an, an influence on my mindset as well about what what was important when building a product. So we've we've kind of carried that forward. I mean, we we tr- we've got a really easy to to access feedback form, literally kind of in your not in your face, but in the products that you can just say, listen, I've got an idea for a product, or this is a bit of friction. Submit it, go straight through to our dev team. Um, that forms part of our roadmap. We have given you know partners um, free so in the early days. We gave quite a few free licenses to people just to give us all warts and all about what they liked and didn't like about the product. Mm. It's a hard thing to do. I mean, I think when you when I look at that now, even getting that really honest customer feedback is difficult because you've got people, some people who just turn around and said, I just didn't really use it. Yeah. Um, and you can't help but kind of get a bit offended by it because you're going to start thinking, but look how, you know, look how amazing it is. Look how shiny it is. It's, it's like this, this great product. <laughs> but they're like, yeah, but I just, just don't use it. So, but the sooner you get over that and the sooner you kind of just, just that becomes part of your day to day and anything that you do, is either customer led or you've at least premised with customers before you've got to that final state. Yeah. Um, is is only gonna improve your chances of well scaling and, and successfully selling to those those yeah. customers in the future. That's just reminding me now of Silicon Valley and that scene um where Richard's trying to explain I think he's trying to explain PiperNet or something to that kind of that user group and he's <laughs> to that user group, yeah. yeah. And he's got the, yeah. he's kind of got the board up, he's like drawing diagrams and he's just like, You need to get this, you need to understand. And sometimes it's just like, Okay, we we've missed the mark. So fair enough. Um but it's it's yeah. in terms of then reducing that friction to buy, I mean what I mean, I guess what are the kind of key factors? How can you reduce that friction to help help someone who's got a problem 
recognize that you're, you've got the right solution and, and kind of onboard that tool, tool quickly? Is it is it price? Is it trials, like proof of concepts? I mean, how do you reduce that that, that friction? I think I think it's a common price obviously helps. I mean, uh, you know, more because I guess certainly legacy systems or certainly the way that I guess software companies were going with were, were quite expensive purchases and they were ultimately purchases that were premised on a, on a cost saving or a time saving. So I think, you know, if your products cost a lot of money to get returns on that in, in time saved, naturally it's a harder sell. So I think cost is always something. Um, but I think more important, and it comes back to the use case point and the way that we we kind of um, have, have set up the system is that essentially we, we kind of modulize the system so you can take bits. Mm. You know, if your use case is that you spend all day in Microsoft Word negotiating more bespoke contracts, well, you only need our Microsoft Word add-in. You don't really need our platform. So we'll sell you that and that's all you need. Whereas similarly, if you spend your days basically creating summaries or doing, you know, reviews of contracts, like summaries of contracts before they're stored or something like that, you're going to live in our web app. So that's what that's what the, your use case is. That's what you'll have a license for. And that's exactly what we'll onboard you for. Um, so the use case is not only important just to, to actually, you know, sell the product and, yeah. and get that initial sale, but actually in terms of adoption, in terms of reducing the friction, um, you know, it still baffles me that, you kind of we have systems where you know the use cases for ten percent of the system functionality, but you sell them the whole platform yeah. almost like as a badge of honor. For me, that is just setting up for huge churn, huge kind of almost resentment for the products. Um, and I think that our, our kind of very modular use case driven approach is 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 very much to support that mentality. Yeah, it's very similar to how we approach things at HiQ. I mean, HiQ is a platform. Um, that is incredibly powerful. It's modular. You've got clients um, that have got very sophisticated use cases, but you've got clients that are just using it for file sharing. And I think it's one of the key lessons that I learned, which is recognize where someone is in their journey before you talk to them, because you might be very excited about this new functionality or this particular module, or you might really want to tell them about what this other client's doing that's amazing. But if that's if that doesn't relate to the immediate problem they've got, then then actually, even though you've got a great product, you could really turn them off. Um, so yeah, again, that kind of incremental approach of saying, where are you in your journey? What, what immediate value can I deliver for you now and, and not overcomplicating it and also having a model that allows you to deliver that value without bringing in all the other bells and whistles is, uh, yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, go on, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Well, I was going to say is, I mean, it, it is the way you've described it is exactly the way that we, we approach and we think that generally speaking that, that that's what how customers like to approach it which is because they're at different stages of maturity in terms of tech adoption or even tech knowledge um we we have the fancy stuff you know we have the the chatbot in teams we have a mobile phone app we have this kind of stuff that really we could you know wow people with in a demo but reality is when we onboard or when we talk to customers about how they should use the products we we, we would never mention them if we think realistically this is this is six months away yeah this is you know we'd love to get you here but actually to start with let's just make microsoft word that bit better and then we'll show you the you know the the, the, the web application and then from there you might send someone a shareable link and then from that actually they're used to the ui so actually the, you know, the mobile phone app makes sense at that point but prior to that you've just done this huge change management project and change of behavior that is only probably going to fail so um, yeah. So yeah, it very much resonates. I mean, but as a vendor, then how do you um, on the kind of onboarding process? Um, I guess kind of you can reduce friction to buy, but then you want when when a client's onboarded, they need to see value, and and one of the ways of doing that is obviously to 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 focus on their, their key use case. But as a vendor, I mean, how do you support post sale um, clients to to see the value from from their tool? I mean, it, it is it is kind of that on the use case we have. What, what we've got, rather than having a very standardized, you know, you will get, you know, I mean, we did do this to start with. So it's something we've learned. Again, a big learning point from, from our development was very much we, we started with a you know, two-hour onboarding or whatever it might be. We have certain onboarding sessions. Um, and they were very much kind of like, here's this, here's this, here's this feature. Um, now we have different measures of success, basically. So we have a few different use cases. You You prioritize the use cases and then you have a clear measurement of success. So for if you're using us as a bit of a lightweight contract management, well, our measure of success is that you've at least got 50 contracts in the system. You've maybe got at least 10 dates in the calendar that have kind of been populated. 
you've got your folder structure sorted and the dashboards are, you know, working the way you want them and, and you, you set up, you know, you know how to use the system. Whereas if you're using us for you know, that kind of high volume, low value type contract, well, in that case, it's more about the, the journey of being able to upload instant summary export. Like that's, that's what we need to get you to do. Mm. Um, so the customer success and the onboarding that we do isn't, isn't generic. It's very much kind of, you know, and it's not time limited to an extent, obviously you've got to be careful how much time you spend in it, but we've, we've kind of managed to get it down hopefully to, you know, quite a, quite a consultative way of saying, we know this is a use case. This is, this is the bits of the product you need. Let's get you up and running so that we, we've got a measurement of success for your use case. And then we'll, we'll look at other use cases later. So that's, that's kind of how we approach it from a, I guess that customer success perspective. Yeah. I mean, the, the best, the best, well, the best tech companies, but the best legal tech companies, are the ones that have the, those types of uh, customer success teams, or at least that cut that approach to customer success, um, that is very tailored, uh, very empathetic, you know, um, very hands-on and consultative. It's just, it makes uh, oh, it makes an incredible difference um, having a good customer success function um, for for both your success as a vendor, but also you know your customers' success. Um, and that's the way you should see. I always see the role of customer success is about. Doing something, doing it in a way that is going to drive success for the for the business, but also for for your clients as well. So um, that's the kind of US UK mentality yeah. as well. I think it comes, it plays into that. I think customer success is, if not the most, I think HubSpot have come out with you know, some great stats about their journey on customer success and how they believe it's the the fundamentally most important part of their their kind of team. And I think in a UK mentality, I bet if you said that to so a number of UK lawyers or even people in just generally in, in business, they think of it as customer service. They think of it as, yes. well, this is someone that's on the end of a phone if, if I have a bug. And the, the different mindsets about what that role should be doing is, is polar opposite from UK to US in, in my experience of working across both. It needs to play a, a much more prominent role um, personally. No, I, I agree. And you're right that it's it's... It's a role that is not is neither customer support or uh, account management. It's something entirely different. It's a, it's its own discipline. But um, um, you know, I've seen seen that team operate. You know, I've worked within within those types of customer success teams in the past as well, and uh, they're just worth their weight in gold. And you just foster so such client loyalty and build some really top quality relationships because you become more trusted by your your customers who actually think these guys are here to help me. They're not just trying to to upsell me um, or, you know, or sell me new stuff. They're actually here to try and help me succeed. And, and that, that makes a huge difference. Yeah, um, awesome. Okay. So, um, I mean, we've, we've spoken a bit uh, about this earlier on, but I just want to come on to this kind of uh, future of, of legal tech uh, after the pandemic. Um, you started discussing it earlier about this kind of um, move away, I guess, from, from these kind of single one-stop shop, large platforms, that try and do everything um and and that actually we might be moving into a world that's slightly different um you know we're all using collaboration tools like teams or slack um we're communicating over over new methods we're a remote first workforce and so people's productivity stack has changed dramatically over the last 12 months i mean what what impact do you think that's going to have for for the approach uh, for legal tech vendors and their approach to to building and and selling products yeah, I think I mean it's been it's been a really interesting twelve months. I think it's it's a hundred percent shaped you know our vision as a product. We I mean it, this was a big a big kind of turning point. I personally for for the company was for about nine months ago, um, very much kind of when the the first lockdown was um, I guess opening up again. We we were going to do the kind of whole red line process, whole negotiation process in platform. Yeah. That was all the plan. We had all designs done, dev were ready to go. And then it was kind of a conversation between us that we were, we were like, like Microsoft Office, Microsoft Teams and Office 365, they, they, they're really onto something here. They, they've, kind of, they, they've kind of cracked this whole virtual office, like everything mm -hmm. in one place. Um, why are we trying to take people away from that? So I think we did our Microsoft Word add-in for that reason um, and completely changed and pivoted a bit of the way that we, we felt the product should work. Um, and so I think... What's interesting as well is when we speak to other vendors and these are the more established, I guess, bigger, whether we got management companies or, you know, these kind of bigger systems, you are finding themselves like they're starting to almost deconstruct their their core platform to be interoperable with with these other systems. So which is, is a big problem. I mean, it's not it's not easy to do. Um, so I think the, the ones that, I mean, personally, when you see these other things like the, 
the examples are like uh, Calendly and Grammarly and yeah. these these tools that you think, well, actually, it's, it's just a calendar. It's a spell check. But the way that they've done the products and the way that they're just everywhere, that you need them to be. Mm. And and I, I don't mean that as in um, an app or something like that. They're in, they're in Chrome. They're in your email. They're in Outlook. They're in, um, you know, whatever... Um, kind of uh microsoft office you know whatever kind of office applications you use they're, they're just they just follow you yeah um so personally i think you know legal tech and certainly the way that, that, that we see the future and they're kind of making that bet is very much on the we want to follow those users to to where the technology is going if you look further afield i mean i kind of alluded to it earlier but you look at the the voice technologies of the alexas the series the you know the, the kind of that kind of q a led mm-hmm. almost conversational style ai as part of, you know, it's amazing how quickly that's just become part of our day-to-day life without almost realizing it. Yeah. Um, and even Slack and Teams, the reason they're very popular in my view is that they have, have almost brought that type of conversational approach to the more formal business communications. Um, so if you, if you kind of magnify that out as to where legal tech can go and where our vision is, it's kind of like, you know, you'll be sat there on Teams or you'll go to Alexa and say, well, you know, Alexa, how many of my contracts are going to renew in the next three months? And it will give you the answer. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, that kind of Q and a very conversational approach in terms of the front door to your contracts will be through the, the business communication systems. And that's very much what, what I see the future of legal tech as. Yeah, no, I think we're going to see, um, that approach 100%. I guess, you know, you've seen so many vendors trying to build those, those all encompassing, um, platforms, but in the background, you've had teams and, and microsoft and i guess the google suite slowly but surely build and build and build see more and more adoption um you know i think it was just last week that teams announced that they were going to enable um collaboration externally so you could work in within teams within your organization but start to work across teams channels with with external um external organizations you know that makes that ecosystem even larger and it, it's got to the point now where you just think why why fight it if that's if that's where people want to work let them work there and the way I see it is very similar to, I guess, you mentioned the commercial, uh, the, the uh, consumer point earlier. You know, if you pick up your iPhone, and, and I had it recently with, with our girls and homeschooling, they were doing work that I needed to submit into, I think, Google Classroom. So I was using a scanning, my scanning app. I could plug in the Google accounts into that so that it seamlessly worked, that I could get the work, scan it in, upload it to, to Google, Google, then transfer it across to Google Classroom. Um, and it's all about just plugging in the apps. And I do the same thing with things like, um, when I'm, when I'm working, I, I send things into notion, um, it's another app I, you know, I do, and it's, it's all there. And I think that's just where we're going to move to with, with, uh, legal tech, which is you'll be working in teams and you'll say, right, I need to pop something into this data room or I need to, you know, I actually need to just automate this document or I need to, I've got, someone's just shared something with me that I just want to get a quick summary in surmise, for example, um, and it's just there at your fingertips where you need it um, without saying, right, what's my login details to this this big platform that I need to go and uh, log into and then find. But I, I guess it does raise challenges for, for vendors as well who have got these platforms. Maybe they need to start to to slightly break them down in, in a way and deconstruct them and start to, you know, uh, those that haven't taken a kind of an API first as well, they need to start thinking about that to, to make, get themselves set up for, for this this new approach to to the delivery of technology tools, I think. Yeah, I don't. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think there's both from uh, platforms that are aimed at the kind of more in-house teams, but also, I mean, I think it's more just a way of working as well. I think you're already seeing it, but from a private practice kind of law firm perspective, the ones I mean, I've seen some very forward-thinking firms. We work with a few that um, they only work with clients on their communication channel of choice. You know, they'll only work with Teams and Slack, and they won't try and bring you somewhere else through another platform mm-hmm. they will kind of and, and actually a lot of clients are demanding it now you know they, they, if they're doing any sort of tender exercise they kind of like you know it's, it's a condition that you as our advisors come to where we work um so i think there's there's kind of how tech vendors kind of integrate with those products but there's also just behavioral changes about how legal kind of interact with both clients and the business is is also going to change yeah. so i think there's yeah, there's a lot, a lot of change, basically, a lot of kind of different, you know, people will approach different ways. I know some people will, will you know, potentially disagree with, with, with obviously that vision that, that we're kind of portraying. But I think certainly from our point of view, um, that's, that's a big focus for some eyes is, is, is to be that provider that mm-hmm. can, that can enable 
enable that. Mm. Now, just on that topic, I guess uh, back back onto onto surmise specifically, um, and as we kind of just wrap up this episode. But um, what does the next twelve months uh, look like for surmise? Kind of what are the kind of key key milestones? What are you looking forward to? I mean, it's, it's, I guess there's a lot of things. You know, there's um, it's, it's a lot about scale. It's a lot about you know we've got to a point where we you know we've got a we've got a very good product. We've got a very relevant product, and we are finding traction in obviously the UK market, but also you know it's been very well received in Australia and, and the US. Um, we we want to prove that out, scale that up, and, and really get some some great proof points in. In, in those kind of countries, um, and we'd love to to be opening up an office um, in the US in, in kind of Q1 of next year. Yeah. Um, and then I think alongside that, we're really keen to explore different scalable models. Scalable models. We're working with some really some some great law firms that are um, essentially kind of whether it be white labeling our products or using Smize as a way to enable businesses to be kind of self help. So they're kind of using our product to say, well, look. If you're reviewing these contracts, rather than not come to us as a law firm, here's a self-help product that you can get instant summaries. It's kind of the branded as their own. And then it kind of means they become a bit sticky with the clients. They become yeah. a bit more of a partner with them um, and just provide that day-to-day help. So there's a few models like that in terms of what we call our partner program. But in terms of, I guess, scaling some eyes through, whether it be our law firm clients or business users through the in-house teams, really kind of getting some eyes out there through our kind of core legal users, um, it's definitely something we want to scale up as well over the next 12 months. Yeah, uh, I know a few other vendors are actually looking at similar similar approaches. And uh, no, I mean, th- this has been really interesting. I think the way you guys have approached things, I guess, you know, partly driven obviously by by, by your kind of mentality that comes from from your background in sport, but but just how you've approached things and keeping things very, very simple and, and thinking thinking very carefully about things from the perspective of the, the buyer and the user and, and trying to reduce that friction, but trying to kind of, always focus on on that core area of value i think i i think um it's going to stand you in such good stead i'm just really excited to see where you guys go um over the next 12 months um and beyond so i i really appreciate you coming on the podcast tom and uh you know talking to us about uh about and your background it's been fascinating yeah no problem and uh, again thanks for having me it's good good conversation i think there's a lot of uh kind of shared vision there as well. So, yeah, so no, definitely. Very well aligned. Um, just, just finally, um, for anyone who's kind of, I guess, interested in a lot of the topics we've discussed on on this or who wants to perhaps reach out or get to know Samize more, how can how can people connect with you and, and the company? I mean, we are very active on LinkedIn. I mean, that's certainly one of the, the most active channels we're on. So I'm, I'm, I'll be on there. We've got kind of a, obviously a, a page, a Samize page on LinkedIn. Um, I mean, similarly as well, I think we've got quite a public email address in many ways with um with tom at surmise.com you know, it rhymes as well um so yeah either of those but but linkedin is certainly our, our kind of probably primary platform that we we push content to brilliant well like i said i really appreciate you coming on it's been a great episode and for everyone um listening uh, the next episode of the uh, legal tech arcade podcast will be out very soon but thanks tom that was great thanks rob That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.